Last week, we read from Isaiah 49, and uh, it's the second of the servant songs. Chapter 53 is the third. But it's almost like uh, the echo chamber from the, the song that the, the, this prophet Isaiah sung, I believe to be a song that Jesus takes up both in nature and tone. Uh, but it's kind of like the reverb, the, the, the acoustic uh, feedback, the, the encore of what the servant song, the second servant song, was declaring. So we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 49 and read through to chapter 50, verse 3. There's five kind of uh, reflections, five um, uh, epithets to the song. I'm kind of looking up there, expecting the words to come up, but they're behind me. I can't see them up there this week, obviously. No, they're just not on the screen, Hermie. I was kind of, are we ready? But they're there. Uh, so here we go. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat, nor the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back and those who laid you waste, depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As as surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them as ornaments and put them on like a bride. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people. And those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, This place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, Who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the people's. They'll bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will 
be your foster fathers and queens, your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors? Or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your savior, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. I thank the Lord for prophet Isaiah and uh, his prophetic imagination, his prophetic voice. I don't know if you captured the major theme uh, that was kind of replete, like the the undercurrent or or, or the repeated melody in there. In the rhetorical questions, in the statements, in in the words of the prophet. That the prophet is painting the picture of this is what people see, this is what people experience. But that has to be held against the Almighty One, the One who is reigning, the Lord God. Again and again, that that we're faced with circumstances and the stuff of life, the challenge of faith, to say, will we perceive the real stuff that is happening, no pretense about that, or will we still and yet trust the Almighty One, who is not about, hasn't abandoned us, who is not lost and on vacation, who is and was and will be. That that often the the prophet uh, illustrates his point with the things of nature, things that seem to be consistent. I mean, I know we live in this this changing age where it seems that the rhythms and patterns of the seasons and uh, of the natural world are getting distorted and, uh, and, uh, and changed. Ice caps melting and um, winter in summer and summer in winter and polar vortexes and beasts from the east and, and, and all those kinds of things that we hear. It seems that, that everything is out of flux. Now, I guess that's part of the challenge of our era and how do we hear God in that. But for, for people of that age, there was a certain predictability. I mean, no, there was freak weather then. I'm not pretending there wasn't. But there's something about the, the continuity of the certainty of the seasons, to know when the north wind would come, to know when it would be cold in winter, maybe there is snow in Lebanon, to know that rivers flow. And as such, even in those last verses, this reminder to say, actually, the Lord can dry them up. 
he is greater than that which we experience. For the, for the people of God, remember the context is here. They've been, uh, they're being exiled. They have gone into exile. That Nebuchadnezzar, that Cyrus, that Darius, these forces, these powers, genuine, powerful rulers, emperors, dictators, despots, megalomaniacs, rulers, held all power, apparently. But the prophetic voice clarion call of the scripture again is to remember to look up to look beyond to look more than for the lord still is always has been always will be but that authority that majesty that that declaration that that kind of undergirds all that the prophet is writing through isaiah but particularly in these in these verses is finding its context in the servant song of this slightly bizarre understanding, uh, which, which mystifies that this is what the Messiah will be like, but doesn't fit in with the view of how a Messiah probably should appear. For people who are oppressed, you want to conquer. For, for those who feel that God has been blasphemed, someone who will set the record straight. Someone who will perhaps rule with the rod of iron for all those who would dare to step out of line. But the servant songs seem to indicate about the almighty God, the powerful one, the the one who reigns supreme, the one whom we should tremble and fear before. Seems to be the one who says, I will come as a servant. I will become low and least in order to establish something far greater. And, and it kind of, still for us, seems a mystery. Still a paradox, a mystery not as unknown, but a mystery that seems to be, how do you reconcile that? But we know because we know how the story works through in Jesus Christ, because we know that death was vanquished as he died on the, upon, the, upon the cross and was buried and rose again, even for his faithful followers on that awful occasion of, of Good Friday, Death Friday, when their friend and, and, and colleague, their rabbi, the one they had confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, was stabbed in the side and breathed his last. It was finished. The powerlessness apparently, of God in the face of evil. And yet, the greater victory won. In verse 7 of of chapter 49, I encourage you to to perhaps hold on and open your scriptures. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. That's the people of God, the Jews at the time, the, 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 the historic 12 tribes. The one who was despised and abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up and princes will see you and bow down. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. You see, even here and in so many places, you get this glimmer of what the Messiah will be like. For the people of God, for, for, for the Jewish people, that there's, there's a real cultural identity of nationalism, of this is who we are. We are Jewish. We are people of the Torah. We are the ones of the covenant. 
And we have to remember that as we read the the Old Testament narrative, we see how Babylon over, overran them, overtook them, of how they wrestle with their identity, of how they're told to, to pray for the, and, and establish roots in, in Babylon, of, of pray for the peace and prosperity of this foreign, godless, pagan city. And they're shocked and astonished, you know, how can that be? Our place is Jerusalem. But there's always glimmers in the prophet, shockingly, and I say shockingly because I'll come on to this in a little bit, but it's still something the Lord, I think, has to work on. <clears throat> whether I say us, meaning us, or whether I mean us as the church at large, I'm sure he still does. You see, we so often believe in God, absolutely, but we kind of make him the God of our little group, of our particular persuasion, of our particular tone and nature. And we sort of encamp saying he's our God, and everyone who is not like us is an outsider, a foreigner. Why is it, perhaps, that we... And it's less now, hallelujah. But it wasn't so long ago that there seemed to be denominational wars. I mean, even today, as I was uh, in the Anglican church, you could see this kind of tension. I'm a Baptist minister serving communion in an Anglican church. You could see this like, for those who are a little bit denominationally based. We all love Jesus. We're all trusting in him, aren't we? I'm not saying we, we reach the low and common, lowest common denominator, not at all. But we are replete with denominations in this world. I think there's 35,000 and counting. That it seems that as we disagree, we, we step aside. And we see God is our God, but not yours. Lutheran, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, you know, fit in the label. But I think actually, you know, that's, that's kind of like an aside of, of who are the people of God. We are called <clears throat> as one in Christ. Paul reminds us, Ephesians, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, in all and through all. And I'm glad that so much of things that would perhaps superficially divide us have become less and less. You know, I do think that there are things that separate us, that define orthodoxy from non-orthodoxy. We need to affirm truth. But here the prophet is, is speaking kind of profoundly, which is blowing the mind of, of, the, of the Jewish nation to those who are contending, holding on in the midst of great pressure. He's saying, actually, my heart is for more than just you. It's for the pagans that you're living amongst. It's for the nations and the rulers, for the far off islands, as the prophetic song, the second servant song was saying. God is saying, my heart, my, my passion is for every person on this planet, for every tribe and tongue. We heard it. He says, I'm going to make the mountains into roads and highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, from the west, and even some from the lower regions of Aswan, the bottom end of Egypt and the Sudanese. That's how we label them now. But the scope and breadth of the gospel is enormous. This is the Messiah that Isaiah is pointing to. This is the Messiah who many will hate. Indeed, the prophet speaks of them and said, many of the people, supposed people of God, the historic national, those who would bear the marks, the circumcision, the practices and performances of religious behavior, 
actually in their heart, they're actually pagans. They are far from me, not close to me, because they reject the Messiah. That he's not come in the image that they expected. And as such, they will stand opposed against. As I've been thinking about this passage, I think one of the things, particularly in our day and age, and uh, you know, dare I say the Brexit word again, you know, it's one of those really interesting issues, isn't it? Uh, someone asked me, do you preach about political views about Brexit in your church the other day? I said, no, not really, because <laughs> we might get a bit of division going on. I do follow some of you on Facebook, and I know kind of like where you stand. By Not all of you, but some of you are kind of pro and anti in some places. And I'm not going to speak into that because I know some of you will be kind of like writing me as le- Philip letters saying, how do you, dare you let Edward off on preaching about Brexit? I'm not coming back on one of those evening ones. But I wanted to touch something that is perhaps a little bit deeper and something that I'm sure you've heard of. And I wonder how this resonates with you. Do you embrace this or do the barriers come up? Because it's here. That we're living in a day and an age where nationality, what nation we are from, becomes something that is is worn as a badge. It's something that is one of the identifiers of who we are. What nation are you from? For the Jews in exile, that really mattered. Do we keep ourselves together? Do we keep ourselves holy and separate? We are Jewish as opposed to the other. I am English, that's fine. And I know there are people here from other backgrounds and that is fine. That I think nationalism is one of those things that, uh, sorry, nationality, as a distinction, I'll come on to nationalism. Nationality, I think, is okay. We all have a nationality. And that's okay. We can celebrate the fact that we all have a nationality. I think it's even, dare I say it, biblical. What do I mean? Well, God says he's the God of the nations. The when John, in his wonderful vision at the end of, um, of the Bible and Revelation, is before the throne, he, he sees and he hears people of every tribe and tongue declaring praises of God. But the gospel doesn't homogenize us into some sort of smoothie of Christians, all blended. But maybe there's something of, of the tapestry and the beauty of what God brings together from all of our different backgrounds and heritages. Of the redemptive power into every con- context and culture. So nationality, I think, is okay. As long as we don't elevate one, that becomes nationalism. See, I think there is a problem. I think this is where the, the prophet speaks into the age that he was, and indeed, our own age of nationalism. Of seeing an identity, whether that is American, make America great again, by inference, everyone else must be lesser. I mean, the irony of America being an immigrant nation is full of people from all sorts of places. I mean, go figure that one. 
Martin Luther King, it was uh, the day of his kind of celebration in America a couple of weeks ago, he said this uh, really profoundly. He said that the truth is that <clears throat> much stands in the way of God's will for our world. And he described them as beasts, the triple, triple beasts, uh, the, the, the giant triplets of evil, the beast of evil. And he said there are three of them, racism, militarism, and materialism. Racism, militarism, and materialism. And I think all three essentially drive into this nationalism of saying this particular people are favored over and against the others. I mean, Jesus said go into all nations, didn't he? Not just a particular few. He said first for the Jew, then the Gentile. God so loved the world, all peoples, that he gave his one. That the heart of the gospel and the heart and the challenge, even in exile, and for us still, I think, is a reminder that God is for all people. It's the mission imperative. But also the hospitality and the welcome imperative for us as the people of God. There are people, uh, I was in Evesham and I was walking down the high street. I went to see someone for coffee and I was like, gosh, look at these stores. There's Polish store and Czechoslovakian store and Turkish store. And I was like, oh, I didn't have time to go. And I was like, I wonder what's on for sale in there. But I know there's members or people that I'm associating with as, who would be self-defined as people of God who see that as a real hostility. Who find, this is where I stray into Brexit land again, the challenge of interaction with other nations, a real, a real challenge to one's own identity. We don't want the Eastern Europeans here. Martin Luther King put his hand on it, his finger on it. He said, materialism. It's a real challenge for a, a nation like ours, and as a Christian community like ours within a nation like ours, of how do we respond to the challenge of asylum seekers? Because there is a sense in which we have got a lot, and they've not got very much in materialistic terms. And it can be a great evil. We hoard and say, we have, and because of that, sometimes we make the connection, we are more blessed. And those who haven't, and we, have, we set up some sort of border or some sort of way of keeping out, keeping aside, and struggle when it seems to be that God says there will be enough. They will feed beside the road and find pasture on every barren hill. There will be enough. Nationalism of saying, we will protect ourselves at the expense of all of those whom God loves. Materialism tends to be essentially greed. We want more. And I hold my hands up. I've got plenty. And I find it a challenge sometimes to extend generosity. Sacrificial generosity. to those who haven't. Mater militarism. Again, essentially, militarism says we will protect ours and our kind at the expense of others. And I know politics is powerful, and I know there are regimes that need to be stood up against. I'm not saying this is simple. 
But I was, I was all, always profoundly stuck, uh, struck, even before I came to faith, and, um, and then since, I, I am still struck by this. And it was draw, brought very much clear to me when I went to the United Nations once and on a little tour around. Not, I wasn't invited as a delegate, I just went as a tourist, you can go in. And they, they have the word, World Food Program has a thing that says, do you know how much it would cost to give clean water and food to every person on this planet? And it's something astronomical, trillions of dollars. Or a trillion dollars, something, you know, it's a huge figure. Should have looked it up, shouldn't I? And, the, and it's kind of like, you know, that would, it's a huge sum of money. But then they make the statement, and it's corroborated by facts, to say this is what the world spends on armaments every day. Isn't that astonishing? This is what we use of guns, of bombs, of civil defense. And, and of course, you know, uh, I'm not denigrating the military service because they do many things. And, you know, this is a complicated area. But we so prioritize militarism because we are afraid of the other. And it seems to me that the prophet Isaiah, in these words, is saying to the people of God, out of anyone in a culture where there are foreigners and those who are oppressing you, my heart is still for the outsider. That kings and rulers and the other are invited to come. And Martin Luther King says the third evil, the third beast, puts of evil, is racism. Now I know... If I asked you to say I'm not racist, hallelujah. But it's, it's funny how we see someone of another race. Where my godson got baptized, he's in the middle of Spark Hill, and out of the church, it's right opposite this big mosque, and as I came out, for some reason, they'd obviously had afternoon prayers or something going on, and there was about 50 properly garbed Muslim men and there was me with my little wet baptistry bag <laughs> coming out of the church. And I have to confess, my first reaction wasn't, oh, here's an opportunity for a witness. It was a bit like, hmm. I saw a skin and a religion before, actually, probably British citizen. Racism. I saw the other as fearful or different. Just as a light aside, I, I came across this about um, the challenge of racism. A, a white man said to someone, colored people aren't allowed here. The black man turned around and stood up and said, um, listen, sir, when I was born, I was black. When I grew up, I was black. When I'm sick, I'm black. When I go in the sun, I'm black. When I'm cold, I'm black. When I die, I'll be black. But you, sir, when you're born, you're pink. When you grow up, you're white. When you're sick, you're green. When you go out in the sun, you turn red. When you're cold, you turn blue. And when you die, you turn purple. And you have the nerve to call me colored. It's easy to say, well, that's our culture, but not the church. Well, not so long ago, in the early 20th century, Gandhi, young Gandhi, was in Britain, studying Cambridge, and 
had heard about churches, Christian faith, and thought, oh, I'll go and find out. And walked up the steps, I think of an Anglican church, and was met by a greeter, a welcomer. He said, we don't have your sort here. And he turned around and walked down the steps and in many ways shut the door in his life to finding Jesus. Just in the last year, we've heard of, of the Windrush generation. Of those who were welcomed and invited and encouraged to come to Britain, but turned away from the established English churches. Racism. One of the joys of being in the church in Spark Hill as as I was serving communion was actually to see the wonderful tapestry of the people of God. It's a little bit more of a challenge in rural England. But I pray as God brings people, and we are a tourist town in many ways, and we're wonderfully blessed to have many peoples walk through our door week by week from all sorts of backgrounds. Even with the Connect team, I was out the other day, and we bumped into some Saudi Arabians on the street. And we were able to give them a donut. Say, welcome to our town. Why are you giving us a donut? Well, it's a slightly more long answer than we love Jesus, here you are kind of thing. But that was the essence. This is a challenge for us. It's a challenge because these things of nationalism are deeply ingrained. But we have to hear the gospel pressure to break through these walls. The biblical pressure. It's here in Isaiah. It's in Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world. It's there in Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them repentance. And he says, no, they're God forsaken and terrible, not at all. Or Peter in Acts on the day of Pentecost, uh, enacting what Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in West, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In our day and age, so much of the ends of the earth comes to us now. As Peter preached next to, he said, in Jerusalem, this is for those who are here, near, and all who are far off. His arm, we're told, God's arm, strong enough to save the entire world. Gospel power is God's power for salvation for every person of every place, of every nation. But the religious detested the Messiah for this. May we hear the word of the Lord. Very quickly, uh, in 49, verses 8 to 12, that the, uh, the fruitfulness, as I've indicated, is of this Savior who will bring Jew and Gentile together. You to be a covenant, we're told. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people through the Messiah. You will be this new covenant. The exiles will return this beautiful foreshadowing 
of not only people of the people scattered, the Jewish people scattered in exile who will return to Jerusalem, but it becomes a metaphor and a picture of actually God will be gathering and making a place, a highway where all peoples will come and the land will not be big enough because of the thronging multitude of the saved, the high and the low. Hallelujah. And... Isaiah wonderfully bursts into praise. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Just in closing. This beautiful, beautiful imagery. Can a mother forget that the baby, the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back and those who, who laid, uh, laid you waste will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come. Isn't that amazing? There's a slight rebuke to the people of God here from the prophet. He's saying, God's got a place and space to welcome whoever comes. Uh, my goddaughter, I was once, I have two godchildren. I talk about them a lot, sorry, uh, for their illustrations. Um, they're lovely in their own right. But she, I was once sitting with her and I was saying, um, do you know God loves you? She said, well, yes, but how can he love everybody? said, but that is the expanse and breadth. And I gave a little bit more of a simplex to the cancer. She was seven at the time. But I said, and this was courtesy of Phil. Phil used his illustration. I was thankful for it. He said, you know, if you have, you know, I said, she's the oldest one. I said, you know, when your sister was born, was it that your dad and your mum, who you know love you so much, was it they were like, well, now we've got a sibling. We're going to divide that love in half. So you get half as much. And you had the whole of their love when you were the only child. And she was about three before her sister came along. I was the second one, and I think my brother resented me, but that's a different story. Probably didn't. But there's this view that with love, when children come, oh, there's a second one, there's a rival for the attention. And then there was a third child, a little brother. And it's like... Is mummy and daddy's love now divided into three pieces of pie? And she thought about it. She said, no. I said, no, that's what love is, is that the more that comes, the more there is to go around. It's not that the cake gets divided up into three. You just get a bigger cake of love. She kind of went, oh, yeah. She, and she got it. That they loved her still as much, and they loved her sister as much, and they loved their little boy as much. This is the challenge so often, with God, we think he is limited. There's not enough room for more. We've not got enough for more. We've only got this finite resource. We've only got this limited perspective and mind. And God says, oh, no, no, no. There's more than enough. There's a bigger cake entirely. But God, even though he's slightly telling them off, critiquing them, saying, do you really think this? He reminds them and says, and I want you to remember this, see, I have engraved you 
on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Indeed, the, the place that he's promised in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, the, the city, God's place. But he says, see, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. I mean, they knew that the high priest and the priest had on their robes the 12 tribes engraved. But God says a little bit more. You're engraved on his mighty hands. If you've ever seen people with tattoos, it's there, isn't it? Whether it's on the knuckles, Vera. Because <laughs> there are usually four. You, know, you have to shorten the name. Shaz, Paul. <laughs> if you have a long name, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, but it's permanent. Or you find it on people's arms and it's crossed out because they've moved on to someone else. But uh, God doesn't move on from us. This reminder of the permanent love that we're engraved on the palm of his hands. There is enough. He cares for us. One of the things I've noticed in life is those who are most secure in love, most secure in knowing who they are because of either as a child, who their parents are, or actually as a mature believer. It's we know who we are in Christ, are the most free to give most unconstrained because they're actually not feeling insecure. Of saying, I'm frightened of the other because they're going to rob me of my place. But when we know we're written on the palm of his hands, on the Lord Almighty, that he cares for us, that he has made a place for us, we didn't deserve it, we weren't born into it, we weren't given it by default, we didn't inherit it, it's gifted to us. To know that his heart is saying there's there's others written there, and they are welcome. And they are from places that seem most hostile to God at the moment, but his heart and his vision is for them. And over there, and, and that place that you may be thinking of, that nation on a world watch list, or wherever it is that seems a long way away and far away, and really, do I even know that language? And it can seem a little bit abstract, but I have to say to you that this is real for every one of us. Because we don't quite know who walks in the door. They may look the same as us. But we're actually, we don't know what their background is, what their religion, what their cultural history. But the truth is that God has made the way open. Jesus, the Savior of all, the Messiah of every person. And the invitation is to come challenge for the church in, in our day and age is to model that welcome model and live out and demonstrate again and again that wide open hospitality it doesn't say come we're a mixed bag and we have just nothing you know anything goes jesus is at the heart of who we are come to him but let us not put up barriers or hurdles or artificial things that say Actually, you're not like us. Keep your distance, please. If that was God's way, none of us would be here. Let's pray together.